Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Ice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It's been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on, and it can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast. It's to talk to the people who uh, create these games, to talk about big industry events, and to talk with my friends about the games that we love to play. Joining me today is an author from a game. It is a brand new game that I'm really excited about, and it gets into something that I have been wanting to do for this show in a while, for a while, which is get back to independent game development. So many times we talk about the big games, the big company releases, because they have, you know, ad campaigns behind them. They literally have advertising staff and they have giant studios were full of people who develop the games and, you know, come up with the, the concept art and the miniatures and everything that we know and love from the games that we play. But sometimes it is important to remember that that isn't just the only way of doing it. And some companies even train us to, to expect the weekly release, to look for the next thing that's coming out, and to have this constant release schedule that keeps us coming back again and again and again and again. And in the process, it's easy to forget that there are amazing games out there that are put out by smaller companies or individuals in particular that are equally good and worth playing. And today we are going to hit a brand new game that I think looks fantastic. And God, it really does scratch an itch. I, I didn't realize I had. So joining me today is Chris from Thin Brushes and Thick Girls to talk about his new World War I skirmish game, Scouts Out. Chris, welcome to Fast Dice. How you doing, man? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. Oh, man, it's a pleasure having you. I love this game. A little bit behind the scenes, pull back the curtain. The reason we haven't done World War II gaming on this show in the past is it's not my favorite, quote-unquote, conflict. I like World War II uh, because it is far more, in my ethic, fluid. Um, there's a lot more movement. It's a lot less trench-fighting. But the idea of small-scale trench fighting, where you're not just lined up on opposite sides from a table and shooting at one another, so where it gets more involved and you're actually you know, having those tough, ugly fights in the trenches that we see in movies, that sounds good to me. The big, wide-open battlefields with the, the machine guns mowing people down in mass, that's not my jam. This is the game that I didn't know I wanted until I opened it and I started reading it and went, hell yes. It's fast. It's brutal. It looks great. Well done, man. Um, how did you Thank get you. into World War I gaming? Yeah, I uh, pre-World War I gaming. It's just World War I is a passion. It's just this clash of... You have a bunch of Napoleonic era officers that have no idea how to use a machine gun, you know? Mm -hmm. I, and so you get these, these noblemen and these conscripts and these brutal fights. I mean, the French in the opening of the war lost 15,000 troops to just machine guns in days. I mean, it's just brutal. It's brutal. And, and I agree, big open World War I games, they're just, they don't have that, that, that itch. A lot of World War I was mobile, and that's where people don't know about it. So mm -hmm. I started looking more into it and more into it. And pretty soon it was like my coffee ritual in the morning was let's throw on some World War I documentaries or podcasts, mm -hmm. you know, or Peter Jackson. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and then it was... Well, I'm going to get into World War One gaming. Well, there aren't any good World War One games, and I mean, there's some good some good companies out there, but none of them were what I wanted, and right. more importantly, none of them were short enough for me to play. Yeah. So, so I just decided I'm, I'm going to do my own. Now, at the beginning of the Scouts Out book, you have a little a paragraph 
uh, a raison d'etre as to why you got into this. And I think it's important to read it because I think it will give our listeners a chance to really see where you're coming from this. Now, this is you speaking. I set off to create a game that was fun and for the busy. I'm a full-time father with five children. Between running kids to activities, jobs, sports, and appointments, I didn't have time to play games. I wanted to create what I now refer to as coffee table games, a game that wasn't necessarily historically accurate, but that was fun, fast, and could fit on a coffee table that I could squeeze in while my youngest was napping. That said, World War I is a personal passion. I have when it comes to history, military history, and gaming in general, which is why I chose that era for this rule set. Thanks for taking the time to support the project, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Now, you are a man who makes my time poor identity of living look like I have all the time in the world. And so <laughs> you created a game that would allow you to get games in in a time where that isn't normally a thing. Yeah, yeah. My uh, so So I was in the Army, and my best friend, I conned him into moving back to Utah with me when, when uh, we both got out and he would come over and we would play games and we would just kind of be like, Oh, what do you want to play? 40 K uh, fantasy, whatever. It didn't matter the game. And we would play three hours and guess what? We'd be on turn five and mm -hmm. family duties would come up or mm -hmm. he'd have to go. So it was like, this sucks. And uh, so then I would, I, that's when I got into this mindset of I gotta find a way to make a game that's that's fast, and, but but not not overly fast and not overly simple. So I started toying around with these rules, and I made a small twenty-four inch square detailed table to fit on my coffee table, and we just mm -hmm. started doing these playset rules and going over and over and tweaking them and scouts out is what we came out with and now he would be able to come over and we well he has he'd come over and we'd play four or five games and we would still have time to barbecue shoot mm -hmm. shoot and stuff like that you know so yeah man there you go because as you and i talked about off air you know as kids we had all the time in the world but we didn't have the money to buy the games that we wanted to play now as adults I have all the disposable income I need to play games. Well, maybe not all. I'm exaggerating. But, you know, for for the, the point of this anecdote, I have the disposable income. What I don't have is time. And exactly. so to have a game that is so that, as you say, is short and is a little bit streamlined, but still has the crunch. Now, that is something special. And I think you've really done that here. Um, talk to us a little bit about how this works, because I know we'll talk about table size in a minute, and I know we'll talk about, um, you know, rough size of forces, but when you imagine what scouts out looks like or what it's playing out on the tabletop, can you run us through, obviously it's a skirmish game, obviously it's world war one, but it isn't just the trench fighting that I was talking about before you have six scenarios that cover a wide variety of situations. Talk us through that a little bit. Okay. So I guess let's, we'll start at the scenarios because I can paint the picture for everything. Uh, so in the six scenarios, we have things like downed pilots or prisoner capture. Uh, there is the classic trench raid if you want to just defend on your table edge. Mm -hmm. um, my personal favorite is probably the prisoner capture because uh, there's quite a few articles that you can find in some journals where uh, small raiding parties have gone out, captured small little French or Belgium farms, and uh, they were used as observation posts or like mobile fire areas. And so I like that because you get this, you, you don't see any trenches, you get woods, maybe some French countryside and some building placements. And then I like that you, uh, in that particular scenario, 
the attacker gets to set up around the entire board because mm-hmm. you, you snuck in in the middle of the night to get ready for your positions and uh yeah and so that's that's that I, and then i wanted to set out so you didn't have to buy more you right. know like like world war ii gamers you've got all the terrain that you could possibly need you know you don't need to buy a whole new terrain set so you could just use what you've got um you, i mean the table size is adjustable uh the figures there's a there's plenty of world war one companies out there but i wanted a little more character because you're only mm-hmm. painting you're only painting five to ten guys aside exactly you know how many hours do we paint 40k armies yeah no, I, right. I mean i mean i I legitimately, I've been playing 40K since second edition, and I have way more paint hours than I do game hours. Yeah. <laughs> so so I wanted to do some figures that had some more character. And once you've got it all set up, you're, you're moving like a chess game. You go, I go, you go, I go. And so it's, it's quicker, it's, it's fluid that way. And uh, you can't get shot off the table in one, mm-hmm. one bad turn. Mm-hmm. And, um, you end up like at least for me i end up getting a lot of zones locked down with light machine guns you know you create these like funnels of death uh i mean that's that scouts out to a t so yeah. well let's let's I, I think a nice segue from there would be to talk about the forces that you would see on the tabletop now you have four army lists in the scouts out book uh, as it stands right now, you have the Germans, you have the British, you have the French, and you have the uh, the Austro-Hungarians. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Yeah. So in each one of those, you have so you have you have different types of leaders. You can have sergeants, you can have lieutenants, you can have different types of leaders. You'll have specialist troopers like snipers or medics. You can have pioneers if you're Germans. Um, you can have raiders depending on the different nation. Of course, there's national rules to go with these nations. Uh, there is just a lot of cool character that goes into the creation of these forces. And you can buy, um, depending on the nation, and there's just a bunch of different entries that you can buy individuals or groups of individuals out to add to your force. And again, you're ending up with something like five to 10 models. So, yeah. um, Chris, how much thought or what was the process in choosing those four to start with and the units that you pulled, I'm sure you were pulling anecdotes from history for yeah. that. What was that process like for you? Well, so I grew up in the UK and I was, obviously the British were going to make the list and the Germans were going to make that list. too. I mean, it was just a, a done deal. Uh, and I started making a list of all the countries that had entered the war historically. And then I started pulling back like uh, the Portuguese fought in World War One, but they have a very limited presence. So I was like, mm-hmm. okay, well, you know, we'll leave them out. Did the Serbians, let's leave them out. Anyway, I ended up with a list that was way too long that my wife just made fun of me for. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was, she was like, that's a bit much, don't you think? So I toned it down. I decided that while it wasn't my favorite idea, I would basically do the countries as they entered the war. Okay. So in the beginning of the war, we have the Hungary, Austro-Hungarians and the Germans versus the British and the French. Mm-hmm. It was the simplest way to keep it. Uh, yeah. And then, then it was just trying to decide how to make them all different. So the British were really easy. Uh, I just I found loads of sources saying that uh, the Germans used to make fun of them because they had such a tiny army, but they were the only professionally trained army in all of Europe. So their numbers, you know, uh, didn't, uh, what am I looking for? They didn't equal to the other forces, but they had the skill level. And then that led into the mad minute. I don't know if you've ever seen a British trooper shoot the mad minute, but it's really impressive. Uh, No, I, I know the Vietnam Mad Minute, and I know that you've mentioned the Mad Minute in your book, uh, but explain to the listeners in case they don't know the World War I version. So the Mad Minute was a term by British infantry to describe they had to shoot 50, or they had to hit the target 15 times 
at 300 yards in one minute using the standard bolt action rifle. When the Germans first fought the British expeditionary force uh, uh, in the northern part of France on a salient, they actually thought that they were engaging machine guns, but it was just British rifles. So, so it was, it was okay. I've got to put that in. It's got to be a rule. And that's what makes the British team, the core infantrymen for the British so good. If you don't move, you know, you're getting those double shots. Mm -hmm. And, and so, so that was that the Germans, uh, they were pretty easy when, I mean, okay. So we're talking German army stormtrooper doctrine. Mm -hmm. And, and what was so funny about that is that the stormtrooper doctrine is based off of French trench raiding doctrine. The French, I didn't wrote, know that. Yeah. The French wrote a pamphlet early on in the war that said, we need small specialized maneuvering elements to engage the enemy and it'll disrupt their lines. And the German commanders were like, didn't work for Napoleon. We're not doing it. And uh, the, the Germans actually found the, the pamphlets and they were like, this is a great idea. <laughs> so they impl implemented the French's own forgotten plan against them. So, I mean, stormtroopers were a given. Mm -hmm. uh, then when it came to the French, like everyone always dogs on the French. Mm -hmm. And and I really like the French. I like them in in so many times throughout history, and uh, and in during World War One, they they had the largest army on the Allied side, and they provided more bodies into the carnage than anybody else. I, they were like true patriots to the cause. Mm -hmm. They just didn't have the officer cadre to back them up. But so I wanted to make them so they weren't that joke force that everyone was gonna. Right gonna dog on well part of the reason why they are seen as the joke force was because they capitulated in world war ii quote unquote so quickly yes see other episodes of cast dice for how that's not accurate <laughs> however um one of the reasons why they decided to capitulate was they didn't want to engage in another ugly war that caused so many casualties because they lost so many people in world war one yeah. Uh, it was it was crazy. I mean, they had over one million soldiers in the beginning of the war. And the, it, by the end of the war, they increased their force to over eight million soldiers. I mean, they had just huge force, but they were they were just it was just brutal fighting for them mm. all the time. Yeah. So so I wanted to make them a fun, tough army. Uh, they learned a lot of lessons through defensive uh, procedures during the war. And then, and when I started out with the game, to keep it simple, I wanted every country to just have two special rules. Because no one liked, at least me, I don't like going through the 40K rule book, you know, or the bolt action rule book and looking mm -hmm. for 10 pages of rules. It's just, it's slow. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I'm too old to remember rules over and over. So, but I did add that third rule that if, if you painted your force in the bright blue and red colors, it would actually, you know, play a part of the game. So I saw that. Oh, it made me think of the old orc anecdote. If you paint it red, you go faster. <laughs> exactly. It's exactly how it works. Orcs were onto something. And then we have the Austro-Hungarians. What's their flavor and character? So, so I really love them historically. I just, I think they're a pretty army to look at. Mm -hmm. They've got pretty uniforms, terrible leadership, but, uh, but you can play them by themselves or you can play them as an allied force with the Germans, which is right. really fun because you can mix the two armies together, Yeah, uh, which you can't, I mean, you could do that, I guess, with some friends by playing multiple forces, but this lets you make one small force combined Austrian and German. Exactly. Which is almost like a fifth army then when you do it yeah. like that. Will you uh, often when people think of World War One, at least when I think of World War One, you often think of machine guns, rifles, maybe a flamethrower, probably some gas. And that's World War One. Um, and if you're really lucky, you might get a tank somewhere. Um, but when you're talking about this game, obviously no tanks, but we are talking about such a wide variety of weapon types. 
You have pistols, machine pistols, rifles, submachine guns, trench guns, sniper rifles, heavy sniper rifles, multiple kinds of machine guns, shotguns, light flamethrowers, heavy flamethrowers, and much, much more. There is just a lot of different granularity and there are rules that, you know, if the machine pistol, if it keeps firing, it can fire more shots, but it becomes increasingly less accurate. Um, I like how each weapon has its own identity uh, and how that gives units or uh, models on the tabletop, depending on how they armed, uh, their own identity on the table as well. Some of the weapons in this book exper or were experimental or were fairly rare on the tabletop. Why did you go that route rather than sticking with the more common tried and true weapons that you saw? Well, one, it's already been done. So we can do something new. And two, yeah. I like to think of the scouts out team, the platoon you've made, your raiding party, your trench raiders, whatever you want to call it. I kind of like to think of them as World War I expendables. You know, like yes. each guy's their own guy. And so, you know, okay, well, you know, Joe over here, he's awesome. I love this guy. I'm going to give him a machine gun. You know, that that's mm -hmm. Joe now. Because you could name your force because it's so tiny. Mm -hmm. um, and I did experimental because these trench raiders, they, they got better pay. They got mm -hmm. better time in the rear. And they did have some of the experimental weapons. Now, a spoiler for anyone who, who doesn't pay attention or doesn't know, um, the Americans are coming. During World War I, they had eight, eight, eight suppressors <laughs> that they experimented with in the field. So wow. the, Amer the Americans will end up getting a suppressed weapon. I'll leave it at that. But uh, there, were, there were only eight of them. I'm going to include the one because we're not playing regiments. We're not playing big companies. So I thought the justification was, oh, well, they only made 500 MP18s and you've got six of them here. That's six. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't outfit an entire company with them, you know? So, so that's why I went with the experimental things and because they're just really fun to draw. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I did that. Uh, well, if we talk about some of the equipment now beyond the weapons, um, you were talking about how things are fun to draw and to create. Now, you have drawn a lot of the images for this, and you've designed a lot of the models um, that are now being, you can buy for SDL files for this game. You're not actually manufacturing the models and selling them like in stores. You've put out the game as an independent, and you're putting out the STLs, um, the 3D print files that people can print to play this game as well. And all of the models have have such wonderful character. The gas masks, the sniper cloaks, um, the trench armor, the trench shields. Like, I didn't even know that was a thing. Um, you have war dogs and all sorts of cool extra gear on these models that you've sculpted that really gives them uh, a flavor and a character. So as you say, it, it does feel like a dirty dozen World War I style where everyone is their own individual. And, you know, you feel it when Fritz goes down. So uh, talk to us a little bit about the, the 3D print design ethos you have for the, your miniatures and the design process in general, you being the guy who's doing a lot of the drawings for these. So, so a lot of it came from finding historical photos of what these guys were wearing. Right. And then... I, I used a little bit of creativity, a little bit of research, and a little bit of my own experience in the field. And I mean, so like take the British, uh, the main British picture, for example, on the army page on page mm -hmm. 20. He's your basic rifleman, except I gave him the British had these raincoats and the Germans mm -hmm. had them too. And uh, you, you never see them on models ever. Right. And, and, uh, in fact, I, I would, I would argue I'm probably, pro if not the only one, at least one of the only people who makes any of these rain cloaks on these guys. But mm -hmm. the great part about them is the nerd in me. It gives so much dynamic flow and character. Mm -hmm. So now instead of just having this infantry guy who's not, uh, like maybe like the German picture, where he's just in a little trot, but now he, 
you see the flow. His rain cloak is moving. He's mm-hmm. moving. You know, the German officer that I affectionately call Captain Kaiser with his shield <laughs> and mm-hmm. his cloak. I mean, I love that model. And I drew him originally with just standing there. And he was so static. It mm-hmm. was it was just heartbreaking. So then I, I wanted this like flare, like a theatrical flare, because again, why not? Like, mm-hmm. Find me another model in the World War One range from another company that does that, and I just don't think there is one. Yeah, so. I mean, with historical ranges in general, I mean, of course, there's exceptions to this, and I know Warlord and their most recent medals have done a wonderful job. For example, for bolt action, having models that you really do feel like they're jumping into a trench, or you know, they're aiming, but in the process, they're kind of ducking or, you know, they're, they're crouched down and they're assembling a mortar team. You really do get that feeling of movement, but not in every range. In fact, in most, you don't. And I love that in every single model in yours, you can see that someone's doing something and you can see what they're doing. And it really, again, gives them that character. Well, I appreciate that. My, my does so when it comes to the 3d sculpting i i started doing it years ago and i am not very good when it comes to organics mm. so so while i design these figures my buddy at miska miniatures he does the actual final designs of these mm-hmm. so and he's just he, the way he takes from my paper to the finished model it's just awesome so talented and uh and like what you were saying about warlord is you're right about their range they look really good mm-hmm. and in their defense they have to make models that people have to duplicate two or three times because in the plastic multi-kits you can you can only do so many combinations correct and and with their metal ranges that i mean you know you sculpt these minis and now if you want to get another squad of them you have the same look and you know, you mm-hmm. got to bash them. I have the luxury of, well, I don't need that many. <laughs> so, exactly. So we can, we can do that. And, you know, there's a little, there is some, some, um, some things that, that drive people crazy, I guess, like uh, the British Lewis gunner. I, uh, he originally was designed holding a carrying handle on top of the Lewis gun. And uh, I got a bunch of rivet counter emails about how they didn't approve of that. So I mm-hmm. went back and did the research. And unfortunately, that carrying handle was designed by the Belgian army in 1920. Oh. <laughs> so, so just missed the war. So I went back and we redesigned it. We had the Lewis gunner holding the underside of the barrel. You know, yeah. I mean, I want to please the crowd, but I also tell you in the beginning, this is not a historic like manifest, yeah. you know just enjoy the game have mm-hmm. fun because that's all i want is i want people to have fun you know so yeah well let's talk about i mentioned it earlier and i i want to make sure we don't forget this now i had when i mentioned that i was recording with you i had some friends ask how many minute models are in the game we've covered that um for those wondering uh this is a point system game so you have 250 points to build your force for most of the games that you're going to be playing that's the recommended size and if we look at like lieutenants um leaders can be something like 25 10 to 25 occasionally a captain can be like 40 points um but then you have like a sniper might be 20 points if it's um, a lower quality, like a professional, like a regular soldier, or if it's a veteran, it could be 30 points. Um, again, medics could be conscript, conscripts, and then you could have uh, professionals or regulars. Um, and it goes from 20 to 25 points. A flamethrower team, again, 20 to 25 points. So you're, you're getting your idea of, plus once you add some gear and you're talking about... Um, how you're adding up your forces you're about you know i would say probably eight to ten models um for a lot of the forces i was building and i do like regular forces uh but table size is the other thing that everyone is asking is this on a three by three is this on a four by four well it's not um as you said earlier it's a coffee table game or i should say it can be 
Can you explain how the table size works? Because I think that's a really neat element of this game is that it is fluid. Yeah. So coffee, I mean, like I call it the coffee table size uh, because you can play just about any sized game. We started playing five figures a team before we had a point system established on a 24 inch by 24 inch board. And it worked. It, it was really, really brutal if you don't have the proper terrain and you're not using cover, but it, it does work really small. And, uh, and I mean, if you really wanted to, you could probably get away with, I mean, the bare minimum force of three guys aside on a small, small table. But yeah. that said, we also have played a 500 point game and we played it on an eight by four, which was amazingly fun because mm -hmm. not only did we have the rule set that we had finalized that we liked, but now we had full on maneuvering elements. Mm -hmm. and that was that was awesome. And so it scales up well, at least in my opinion, and I'm biased, but it does. It scales up well. Yeah, you can you can play really comfortably. 250 points on a three by three. Okay. You play it smaller, you can do it, but uh, I definitely wouldn't play 500 points on anything smaller than a three by three. Yeah. So. It would, it would get a little cramped and a little brutal. I think, uh, it, yeah. Hey, if you want, yeah. if you want a fast game where a lot of things are dying an even faster game for an already fast game, I think that might be how you do it. Bring heavy machine guns. Oh man. Yeah, exactly. They will lock down a board. Well, that's why you also, that's why terrain is important. Um, yes. Well, I think it's also important. I know I don't usually bring this up, but since the table size is fluid, it might help people to understand how things work with this game. If we talk about the movement characteristic, most models in this game move six inches, um, yes. but you can run 12. So it's the old move or run double that. Uh, or stand and shoot, or if you move, you can shoot as well, although that does affect your shooting quality. Am I saying that right? Yes. You've So all the soldiers have a training level. Mm -hmm. So the better trained soldiers, they're going to move quicker, like, like moving through difficult terrain. Uh, you know, you've got your standard move. Uh, you, you have horses and bicycles if you want to move even faster on bigger mm -hmm. tables. Uh, so, and it, and it's a cover based game because there's no power armor in this. No. <laughs> so, um, and the rules for, for shooting with all that is, you know, it's based off of their skill level and a high, like, uh, what do you call it? A matched dice roll to beat your opponent. Mm -hmm. So, um, one of the components I really liked was how we came up with the shooting defensive system. And it's similar to anyone for anyone who's played the old war at sea by Axis and allies. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you roll your dice based off of your training level and you add those two numbers together and the defender needs to equal or beat that. And then all the weapons have their strength points to, uh, to knock the target down. That's right. You did mention cover being important in this game. I like how you have a nice long list of um, cover modifiers, but as you said earlier, it's, it's one of those things that, and I did push some models around on the tabletop just to get the mechanics right here. And I liked that though you have a nice long list that is nice and granular about clearly laying out how the table set up as far as shooting modifiers. It's very easy to remember. I didn't have to flip back and forth a thousand times, which is nice. Um, you have light foliage, um, you have light vehicles being a modifier. You have he heavy foliage. There's buildings, there's walls, fortifications. Sandbags have their own separate uh, modifier. It's really clear. And I would be hard-pressed to think of something that would be on World War I tabletop that isn't accommodated by that list or what you've included in the book. And I really like that because it, it takes the guesswork out. It keeps it nice and clean and simple. Something else in this game that you've included, and it is sometimes scenario dependent, and I love that this is in here because very few games do it. 7TV may be the only other game that I can think of that allows you to do this, but take prisoners. Um, so many times in other games, it's casualties and you move them off and then you go, well, they might be 
a prisoner or they might be dead, but we're not sure. We'll figure it out after the game and just gets on with the game. But in this game, you actively have to take prisoners sometimes. Talk to us about how that came to be in that process, because that's a really cool mechanic. So the prisoner concept came from the fact that I want to write a fast, fluid campaign system. And people are going to want to know who dies and who lives. So I might as well start in the beginning. And also, it's just a little insulting to, uh, to take prisoners of the other guy you're playing against, you know, and just parade them around that mm-hmm. well, now they're mine you know so that's really where it came from was kind of razzing my buddy and and i wanted to make sure that it was implemented into that that future campaign system and and i think the prisoner system allows for you to create some really fun scenarios too instead of just oh i have to kill their headquarters guy mm-hmm. you know so oh, yeah so that that's what i did and and i tried to make it really smooth and and makes sense, you know, for how it works. Another nice scenario element for when people are sneaking around before things get loose um, or get wild, I should say, is more the mechanics around guard dogs uh, or or war dogs in this case. Uh, I think that was really cool. And again, lots of little flavor flicks, nuances, that really do add to the scenario play that I really think gives this game its character. So they, yeah, I love war dogs right now. Germans are the only ones that can use them, Mm -hmm. but that will change. (laughs) I promise it's coming. Um, I get a lot of questions or uh, compliments on how much people love the dogs. So Mm -hmm. I, I like them as the extension of that, of that individual's weapons. So I think they're a lot of fun to play. Uh, And I love that for those of us who may spend more time than is probably healthy going down rabbit holes, trying to figure out what color to paint the boots on our, you know, Russian Naval troopers uh, or Soviet Naval troopers in world war two. I love that you have a color section at the end of this, because as I said, I'm not a big world war one guy, but I I do really like the look of this game, especially since it's, as you said earlier, it's not just your usual plain Jane uniform guy. Everyone's got, you know, something going on on their character that really does give them a, a personality and it, it made me immediately wonder like, oh God, like I remember how much just looking at the internet I had to do to figure out how to paint basic World War II guys, let alone these guys who have those little nuanced pieces um, that give them that character. How am I going to figure that out? And you have a nice color guide for all the forces in this book at the end. Clearly some of the specialist forces won't match, but to get you started, it's in here. It clearly lays out, uh, you know, there's a nice color diagram. Everything's labeled with what colors you'd recommend to paint those, to get those colors. Love it. Love it. Thank you for including that. It's a nice touch. You were the first person to mention it since I put it out. And I'm, I'm glad somebody likes it. Cause I was, I was afraid that everyone was like, Oh, it's stupid. Whatever. I'll do my own colors. You know, it's not, you got to do it by the book, but sometimes you're just like, I don't know where to begin. Mm Mm-hmm. And so all the colors listed are the exact colors I've painted all the demo models. So at least they're base colors. You know, I might do a little bit of, you know, some uh, some shading with oils and stuff like that to get the effects. But those are all the base colors for those models. But, but no one said anything, so it's great that someone enjoys it. <laughs> Oh man, I I opened it and it was one of the first things I saw and I went, this is a man who knows what I needed if I'm going to pick this up because I don't have the base knowledge to even know where to start. And it would give me fits um, if that wasn't in there. So well, as a hobbyist, even, I say thank you. Oh, I won't even play games if my forces aren't painted. And right? it drives me crazy. I will buy games that I absolutely love and people will be like, let's play. Nope, they're not painted. Won't play them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't care if my opponents aren't painted. It's just like a personal choice for me. Oh, yeah. You know, Dude, so me too. <laughs> me it, too. It's, it is the OCD, and my wife hates it. She's like, oh, I got you this for your birthday. When are you going to play it? Well, they're not painted, so. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Oh, man. 
Maybe you and me year. both. Uh, yeah, my wife is not happy with that. So the point where when I play um, like Marvel Crisis Protocol, when I'm when I was first learning to play and I was painting the models took me forever. I was like, oh, I have I got this Funko mini Funko Fun Pop miniature, you know, uh, Funkos for Christmas, the advent calendar. I was like, oh, I can just play with these because they're painted, um, <laughs> which, you know, I'm sure caused many people to grimace. But anyway, let's talk about the future of Scouts Out because clearly you have ideas. You've mentioned a few things just in passing. And when we were about to record, you mentioned several other things. So what's the future of this game? Where are you planning to go with it? Because I know for a fact you just got physical print copies of this book that you were going to be sending out to people who want the hard copy. I have the PDF and I know a lot of people got the PDFs a while ago. And I know, you know, we live in the COVID era when things show up when they do. You can literally just buy the PDF for this book. You can buy yeah. all the STLs and print your own models for this. It really does fight against the ship to your house is a problem in this day and age. And I know, for example, that it took, there's months I've been waiting for a box from the UK at the moment because there's a postal strike on. With this yeah. game, you can get it instantly. So yeah. moving <laughs> forward with that model where people can get new releases instantly from you, what are your thoughts about moving forward and how do you like that? So I, I want to, I wanted to, when I started, I wanted the small rule book like I have now. And, and then after adding more and needing more and still keeping it simple, I was like, well, I'm going to be modest. I pay for everything out of my own pocket. You know, it's, it's just a one man, me financing it job. So I figured I would do the first rule book and I get it out. If people like it, great. If people like it enough that they'll let me keep going, then I will keep going. Right now I'm working on uh, an expansion that will bring the Russians and the Ottomans into the, nice. into the fight. Um, it's also going to bring grenades, uh, trench mortars, and a new scenario with a uh, drifting cloud of gas. So we, uh, a few new equipment pieces like gas masks will be optional to buy now. So you could just avoid the cloud or go right through it, but mm -hmm. you better have paid the points for that mask. So that's what I'd like to do. A few more slightly more balanced competitive scenarios in case those people want those more competitive edge play. Mm -hmm. uh, the Russians, the Ottomans, like I said, a few more weapons. Uh, the Italians will probably be in that expansion as well. Uh, and maybe the Americans. <laughs> I might put them in there. Um, and then I'd like to do two more. Again, if, if people are up to it, I'd like to expand to Africa, Egypt, maybe even over to uh, Japan and China for some of the incidents there. You know, it, it's what people, if people want it, I'll keep doing it for them. You know, I just you know, show the support and, and I will give all the love back I can. Yeah. And uh, again, yeah. this isn't a game company with the resources backing it up. This is one game designer. Hi, Chris, uh, who <laughs> is, this is his first game and he's put it out. And if you are interested and you want to get in on this, you can support him by just buying the PDF, which isn't expensive. I have it. It's, uh, it's a great, as you said, it's a small, short rule book. Uh, it's 60 pages, but you get the painting guide, you get all the rules, you get uh, the four nations, each with the national rules, you get some great color photos of his models. There's there's some great stuff in here. It's definitely worth checking out if you just want to support him by checking out the rules and getting the PDF or buying the hardback or the sorry soft cover book, um, the physical copy. I really enjoyed reading this, and as I was reading it, because I don't have the World War One background, I, I guess, um, I know that you and I spoke about this before, Chris. Um, I immediately thought, because I don't have the World War One, but I do have a lot of interwar models, I immediately thought of, you know, the, the Battle for Shanghai, because I already have a, a themed Chinese Battle for Shanghai list 
and a themed Japanese battle for Shanghai list that I use for bolt action, immediately I could use these rules to play that out. If I proxy, this is this, you know, maybe the Chinese yeah. use the German rules. And um, I'm not sure what the Japanese would use. But to hear you say those words, I'm going, yes, I already have those forces. I already have that terrain. Hit me. <laughs> I'm biased, but I think the rules can basically be played with any sort of rough period weapon. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you want to play World War II commando raids, I think mm -hmm. this, this rule set will work. If you want to play inner war or, you know, Irish revolt, it'll work. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and that's one thing I wanted to do is I wanted to make a simple rule set that wasn't tied down to anything but the core rules. I mean, I even have a section in here that says, you don't have to buy my models. Just go to your local store and buy one box. That's all you need. Let's get gaming. Let's get playing with friends again, you know? Mm -hmm. So. Look, I'm not going to lie. The other thing I thought of immediately was I have all of these painted Star Wars models and I don't really want to play Star Wars Legion. Mm. Stormtroopers, you say? You would uh, not be the first one to say that. <laughs> there you go. Well, guys. I highly recommend, as I said, checking out Scouts Out. Uh, it is, it looks like a lot of fun. I, I have pushed it around on the tabletop, but to be honest, I haven't played it with another human being yet. And I do want to do that at some point soon. Uh, I may be doing the Star Wars thing, but <clears throat> highly recommend you check it out. Chris, how can people find this game? Uh, the easiest way is Scouts Out on Facebook. It's Scouts Out, Raids and Reconnaissance in 1914 to 1918. We'll show up. It's the same name on Instagram. And uh, if you do find it and you buy the PDF or if you bought the hardback and you want to find the models, there's a, uh, a quick scan on, what is that, page four that will take mm -hmm. you straight to our store. Just make it easy for you there. Yeah, man. Brilliant. And if you are wondering, uh, the cover of the game is a gas mask wearing a helmet with crossed uh, sh uh, spades, shovels, spades. shovels behind him. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, that is the Scouts Out you are looking for. And if you go to the Facebook page, you can message Chris through the Scouts Out page and he will respond um, because that's one of the great things about being a small game company. If you have questions, the man will listen. And uh, as he's already proven, he changed one of the designs for one of his models to match uh, customer feedback. So it's I, I'm not saying that Chris is going to take on everyone's feedback right away. But if you have a question about the game, if you want to know more, here's the man who knows all about it. So please do go to the Scouts Out Facebook page and check things out. And if you have a question, reach out and talk to Chris. I'm sure yeah. he would love to hear from you. Yeah, I, I try to respond as quickly as possible. If you have problems with downloads or questions on rules or suggestions, my ears are always there and I'm always willing to write back. But like me, just remember, he does occasionally sleep and he does have a few children and a few jobs. So <laughs> give him yep. a couple hours. Working on getting rid of some of the kids, keeping the favorites, you know. On that note, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been an absolute pleasure, and I really do enjoy the game. Thank you for all your hard work. And, uh, you know, hopefully when you have more expansions out for Scouts Out and I've had a chance to play some games, we can have you back on and we can talk shop. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime, man. Guys, Happy New Year and welcome back to Cast Dice in 2023. Uh, I did pre-record all of the episodes running up because I've been away. I've actually been in the United States for the last almost three weeks, and I am now back in Australia. For all those who messaged their page when I was away, I think I've replied to everyone. Uh, however, if I've missed something, if you want to hear something on Cast Dice going into 2023, please message the Cast Dice Facebook page, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. You are guaranteed a response by me, but like Chris, I do occasionally sleep and I do mean occasionally. So I will respond. I promise it might take a little while. I think on that note, though, as our buddy Casey always says, when you play the games that we know and love, I hope that your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than that, 
we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night. Are gone and they're trapped.